This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the journey to Babel Project was our last best hope for peace. I am Gepwin. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique thingamabob show. I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched what's probably one of the best original series episodes. Oh, heck yeah. The freaking city on the edge of forever can suck it. (laughs) I think I definitely like this one better than the city on the edge of forever. Uh, is uh, you know more interesting interactions, uh, more uh, you know cohesive plot. Uh, the the ethical dilemmas were like make more sense, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, if if this was what most of the rest of the show was like, I could see what people are getting out of it. Maybe people only remember like a couple episodes. Maybe that's the thing. It seems <laughs> like I'm just not sure because this kept this was showing up on like top fifteen lists and things this episode and i found this like i think it was a times article or something but it was it was like the hundred best star trek episodes like out of everything all the series combined and this was in the top 10 though they still listed journey uh like city on the edge of forever as the top of all of star trek ever yeah yeah that that doesn't make any sense to me (laughs) yeah i just i don't understand what people are getting out of some of these i mean mean, it was it was good but it wasn't that awesome hmm. no oh, it wow. was worse than literally all of next generation they including <laughs> the weird the weird episode where Riker gets bit by a memory insect well i i would say that there was a uh, that one episode that people tried to forget actively you know there was something about you know code of honor perhaps but we're not going to talk about that today <laughs> Instead, we're gonna we're gonna talk about what are we gonna talk about <laughs> today we watched journey to babel yes but not babylon 5 journey to babel Though similar linguistic roots, well, I guess literary roots, you know, about people coming together in a location to discuss things, and then, then a little tower, I guess. Yes, and then being punished by God for working too closely together. Don't cooperate is the message there. Dang it! <laughs> I guess this whole federation thing is you know a pie in the sky idea that just won't work because the divine mandate. Yep, divine divinity will come and curse you all for working together. Because you're too Dang powerful it. if you can all understand each other's languages. Hmm. But how else will we conspire against the divine and take over the universe? Uh, dust or something? That was that was um, dark materials. I, I never read those. I did see the one movie there, but that was still kind of awkward. The movie's not as good as the rest of them. The books are amazing. That's what I keep hearing. I, I maybe we can pick those up at some point. Yeah, you should. Anyway... On to some Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't even need to, to procrastinate on this one. <laughs> yeah. This was written by DC Fontana, who probably writes some of the better stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm unclear as to what point during this season she becomes the producer. She does take over as, like, head writer, executive producer at some point here. Um, let me check my thing here. And I don't think she's producer yet, but I might be wrong on this. Yeah, she definitely t- she takes on a leadership role sometime during the second season, and I'm unclear as to when, but hopefully that's when we start seeing more improvements, perhaps. Fingers crossed. We've only gotten two of the famous episodes so far. I didn't realize so many of the things people remembered were in the uh, latter half of the series here. 
Indeed. We've got a lot of guest stars, but I'm only going to miss mention kind of the main three because there's too many weird alien names and they only sort of show up, so... Yeah. Like Shross and Gov and Chekhov? Yeah. <laughs> Chekhov. What a weird alien. <laughs> I don't even know. Some sort of beetle alien. <laughs> He, 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 you know, he just he just laments that he can't buy you love. We're seeing the return of Mark Leonard, this time playing Ambassador Sarek, the role that he would maintain for the rest of his Star Trek career. Mm-hmm. Of course, he showed up as the Romulan commander earlier on. So uh, this is not his evil twin. This is just a completely different character. Completely different character, but I guess it's just Vulcans and Romulans are so closely related that some of them look exactly the same. Yes, there might be a Spock XP somewhere. Then have Jane Wyatt as Amanda, Spock's mother. Uh, I believe she's, uh, you know, it's like famous room for some stuff. Uh, she's also in Love Boat. Yes, Love Boat, I think, was her main thing. She's been in a few contemporary stuff. I believe she shows up a little bit more in the series. She shows up in the one of the movies and then another, obviously another actress, but she's a fairly central character with a lot of speaking parts in uh, Star Trek Destiny Season 2, or Star Trek Discovery Season 2, because they have to involve Spock a lot in that series. So it's, it's cross-branding. And we have Reggie Nalder as Sheros, the Andorian ambassador. Yes, and he he kind of acts a little creepy overall, but you know, I, I thought he was okay. I liked him, and I think it's like yes. <laughs> legitimately the only time Andorians show up until we get to Star Trek Enterprise. Just a little weird. Like for being a very featured and famous alien society in in the Star Trek, they're mentioned a lot. Just they only show up one time until they become a central <laughs> species in Star Trek Enterprise. I guess they just never go out. <laughs> so it's like, yes, yeah, so we're on every other planet, says everyone else. But the Andorians like, yeah, we're just going to stay home. Though the Andorians are the best part of Star Trek Enterprise. The main Andorians played with the same guy who played Wayun in DS9. It's just my favorite Star Trek actor overall. <laughs> He's a, he plays so many roles, and he plays them so well. <laughs> yes. He's the only reason I kept watching Enterprise. <laughs> uh, why am I not remembering the name? Uh, Jeffrey Combs, that's it. <laughs> he's like the best He's the best Star Trek side character after uh, after Q. Yes. <laughs> not, not necessarily the characters he plays, though they're all pretty good too, but the actor himself, the side character. <laughs> yes. He also voices the question in the animated justice league cartoons also my favorite character (laughs) anyway he's not in this episode (laughs) pretty sure he may or may not have been born (laughs) at this point uh i think he was born by then he was born in the 50s looks like yes okay so yeah he was born but a child teenager i guess he was probably watching star trek at the time most people anyway. seem to have been they don't have a big enough part but there's also some people credited as like small copper skinned ambassador and we'll get to that later <laughs> blue woman who stands in the background there's a vulcan aid there's a purple skin person there's a um second aid uh there's a montgomery yep yeah. <laughs> this episode's pretty notable for being the introduction of the kind of actual aliens. This is one yeah. of the first times that we really get the like Star Trek alien diversity, like here is the Federation with several different species all together on the same ship. Instead of like really 
you know, you know, you know, just different costumes, and they are basically humans, or just paint their, you know, everyone the same with the, the same, you know, ridiculousness, and it's really kind of unfortunate, like with, with the Klingons there. Uh, it's like, yeah, we're gonna have, we're gonna at least try to have a makeup budget and some diversity here. I'm sure, some of it looks a little weird, but yeah, yeah, I think it it adds a bit to the episode. It's I wish more of it was like this because it's mostly talking. There's good character interaction. Mm-hmm overall just just way better than most of the stuff we've been getting but i suppose we should just get into it yes let's get let's get let's get rolling kirk and mccoy are getting spiffy in their dress uniforms and mccoy complains a bunch of exposition at us he's convenient that way delegates yeah (laughs) apparently the enterprise is hosting a gaggle of federation diplomats as they transport them to the planet babel for political talks Tensions are high because many of the delegates don't get along and they're disagreeing about mining rights on some planet we find out about later. It's really, really unimportant. It's just, it's the background as to why there might be some issues. Um, But yeah, this Babel place, I don't know, this sounds fishy to me. Only one delegate remains to be coming on board. It is the Vulcan ambassador Sarek traveling with his human wife. They come on board and Sarek is oddly chilly towards Spock, even refusing to take a tour of the ship from him. You just hate other Vulcans, then? Yeah, probably. He's Vulcan racist. That's why he married yes. a human. <laughs> exactly. Kirk suggests that Spock might like to take some time off to visit his parents on Vulcan, which is a very awkward thing to say to someone, just generally. Like, we just picked yep. up an ambassador. Do you want to go visit your parents? <laughs> this, of course, is only mentioned to set up the fact that Ambassador Sarek and his wife are, in fact, Spock's parents. Dun, dun, dun. Even if Kirk did not know this, which, like, why would Kirk not know that his first officer is the son of the Vulcan ambassador? That seems like a really important bit of information to be knowing. <laughs> also, how many Vulcan human couples are there? <laughs> Apparently enough. Apparently that, enough. You know. <laughs> but how is everyone so ignorant of the fact that Spock is the son of one of the most famous Vulcans in the Federation. Perhaps Spock is uh, engaged in a uh, active disinformation campaign in order to get everyone thinking about other things about his life as opposed to that, and thus it just no one ever tells anyone about it. I get like I, I just it's just weird. They don't do bad with it. It's just odd that they had to make that. Like it doesn't even matter that no one knew these were his parents. It's revealed in the first five minutes of the episode. And then it's never talked about that, like like it was a secret. So, yep. uh. <laughs> maybe Kirk was maybe just only Kirk is the one that's out of the loop here. <laughs> yeah, Kirk didn't. Pay the, the socks just like I told you about this like six times. You never listened to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how the relationship is, though. Moving on. <laughs> on the ship tour, we learn that Spock and his father are not on speaking terms because Spock joined Starfleet instead of the Vulcan Science Academy as his father wanted him to. Uh, weird familial expectations are still a thing and across species. Uh, maybe in the future it's something that's more prone for Vulcans. That's maybe that, you know, as the humans moved away from it, the Vulcans pick it up instead. I doubt it. There's also a mysterious signal that Ahura cannot trace. Weird, mysterious things going on elsewhere. A mystery. Hmm. Afterward, at the reception, we see a large array of alien delegates, including several of our first look at Andorians and Tellarites, who are kind of hairy with sort of upturned pig-looking noses. The Andorians got their, their antennas, and uh, they're all their, their antennas are kind of adorable. The Tellarites are less so. Um, yeah. 
There are some copper-skinned people running around who are fairly short. There's a woman in the background who's painted all purple and is in a revealing outfit because you had to get one of those, I suppose. Sarek is talking to the crew when a Tellerite walks up, demanding to know how he's going to vote in the upcoming discussions. Sarek refuses to discuss it with him, and the Tellerite leaves in a huff. We also mm. meet Saras, the Andorian ambassador at this point. It's like, oh yes, you know, uh, we now have our, our rogues gallery assembled. We now know the players. Let's see where this goes. While Kirk is at the reception, the bridge reports that they've detected a small ship tailing them. Kirk returns to the bridge to try to intercept the ship. They have a brief aside with Sarek telling his wife, Amanda, that she needs to stop teasing Spock that shows that he cares about him in some way, albeit in a very logical way. It's basically, he's a Starfleet officer and his mother doesn't... Starfleet officers don't want their moms p bothering them. Yeah, there's a certain amount of uh, you know respect that's afforded to the, uh, the position. You know, even if I don't want him to be in that position in the first place, but, you know, he's already there, so you better do this thing, so you stop, stop, be, you know, making making jokes about him and teddy bears and things like that. And I turn to the bridge where the small ship is too fast and maneuverable for the Enterprise to catch, so they give up chasing it and maintain their current course, now being shadowed by this other ship. Well, we're being followed. Um, should we, like, call another ship and get some help? Because... We're kind of on an important mission here, or are we just not going to do anything? They don't do anything. I mean, apparently they don't have a lot of ships. <laughs> we never see other Starfleet ships. Uh, unless they're broken or there's like a war on. <laughs> we return to the reception again. Sarek is confronted by the same Tellarite, and he finally tells him how that he's going to vote for admission, which is apparently the option that the Tellarite did not want. And he gets ticked off and attacks Sarek, but Sarek easily rebuffs him making him run away again. Now there's physical violence. Yeah, I forget if it's established at this point or later, but there is a, a question about mining rights involving this uh, star system, so... Basically, all the political stuff feels like it's going to be important, but then it's not, so... But yeah, there's something about this planet is very, very rich in dilithium crystals that they may want to mine. And the political stuff is more motivation for things that happen later, but yes. We suddenly cut to the Tellarite hanging upside down dead in the Jeffrey's tube. Oh no, did he fall? Well, they'll, I don't know, maybe. Why is he in the Jeffrey's tube then? Well, he's climbing down, he you know, slipped, you know, tumbled <laughs> head over heels, and, you know, and cracked his head on something. In some sort of tube? Yes, in some sort of tube. <laughs> <laughs> this is where things start to get a little bit complicated, so we're going to do some quick fire. The Tellarite's neck was broken in a way that suggests Vulcan martial arts, making this and his confrontation with Sarek the prime suspect. While questioning Sarek, they reveal that he actually has some sort of heart problem collapsing in front of them, so he was, you know, incapacitated at the time, making him a more unlikely suspect. Also, McCoy is not sure if he can treat this life-threatening disease. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh so some of so some of the uh, details uh, sort of suggesting this heart condition was that at one point earlier, one of the banquet uh, scenes, Sarek was seen uh, like taking some pills, and those pills are apparently not enough. He needs actual surgery now. Yeah, they were seen taking some pills. McCoy mentioned at one point that he seems to have retired early for a Vulcan. Yeah, so he's not health problems. foreshadowing, but yeah, yeah it's, Sarek it's having of... health problems is just the only reason he's ever in an episode of this series. Yes, when we get to Next Generation, we'll see this uh, sort of thing again, so yes. Also, the ship that is tracking the Enterprise is sending transmissions to someone inside, but they're unable to track it down yet. 
In sick bay, it seems more and more unlikely that Sarek is the murderer because he was having heart attacks, multiple heart attacks, or the Vulcan version of heart attacks. Some sort of uh, congestive heart failure sort of issues. McCoy could do surgery, but open heart surgery is going to take a lot of blood, and they do not have that amount of Vulcan blood on board the ship. In addition to this, we are told that Sarek has a rare T-negative blood type, which I don't think mattered at all, but they, it's rare for Vulcans. <laughs> and they had to get T-negative in there, just so you know it's alien blood. Well, I guess since we did see some uh, other Vulcan, uh, you know, as the AIDS and things like that, this is to sort of have us not even think about them as options. That's true. I forgot they were there, so I wasn't thinking about them as <laughs> options. So double, so double worked. Excellent. Even with Spock's matching blood type, if he volunteers to donate blood, he will not have enough for the surgery to work. Yeah, because you need like 12 times a, a normal Vulcan's amount of blood in their body in order for this to work for some reason. McCoy and Spock work to track down an alternative solution when Spock finds an experimental drug that would increase his blood production to the point that he would be able to act as a blood bank. It is risky, but he convinces McCoy to set up the surgery. Now, there's some, uh, you know, yelling back and forth like it's not made for Vulcans, but it kind of is, and yeah... We immediately cut to Kirk mid-attack by one of the Andorian aides. Oh no! Uh, what'd you do to piss him off, Kirk? I don't know. It cuts into the middle of this fight. I was really confused. <laughs> Action scene! Activate! Kirk employs a butt-slam technique that fails to defeat the Andorian, and he is stabbed in the back. Oh no! It, 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 the, the stabbing in the back actually looks like it missed him, but, you know. <laughs> Alright, so this scene just... He, he jumps up, puts his feet on the wall, butt first into the Andorium, knocking him over. Yes. <laughs> then he's crawling on the ground. The Andorium stabs in what definitely looks like a buttward direction. Yep. So sort of lower back region, you know? We later find out that it apparently just missed his heart, which raises some anatomical questions. You see, in the future, the human heart is lo located in the stomach. <laughs> Kirk survives the stabbing long enough to knock the Andorian out and call for help. Now, uh, sort of an aside here, uh, during the fight scene in the, the original version uh, of, the, uh, of the episode, uh, since we're both you know, generally watching the uh, sort of uh, uh, updated, revised, sort of mm -hmm. CGI extra stuff uh, version of, the, of, the, uh, of these episodes... Uh, there was a, uh, a, a supposedly a sound of a coconut hitting something as part of the sound effects of the fight. That was just <laughs> so silly that he cut, decided to cut it out. Oh, I've got to track that down. <laughs> and you see Monty Python galloping through the background. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the knife punctured one of Kirk's lungs and barely missed his heart, meaning that he has to recover in sickbay. This means that Spock is now in command and cannot incapacitate himself long enough to carry out his father's surgery. Oh no! But can't we, like, get Scotty to take over? He's not been in this episode yet. Apparently they can't transfer command to Scotty, I think because they didn't bring Duan on for this episode, but mostly because Spock is like, well, I we're in a dangerous situation and passing on command would be a dereliction of my duties. Okay, I guess. Spock's own mother spends a long time trying to convince him to do the blood transfusion anyway, but he is so steadfast in his duty he refuses and she slaps him and leaves. So, um, so there is one logical argument you could have made there, lady. Um, it's like, okay, your mission here is to get these ambassadors to the destination safely and secure, right? If one of them dies along the way, that you're failing at your duty. Could you maybe consider that as part of your logic? 
Yeah, they could. I thought they were going to use that, but they didn't. Kirk wakes up, finds out that Spock is not going to go through the blood transfusion, so he plans to go back to the Briz just long enough for Spock to think he's fine, and then he's going to put Scotty in command. I don't think you need to do that. Seems complicated. Can't you just call him in and go, I'm your captain, I'm ordering you to do this, Scotty's in command now? That would be the sensible reason, but... I know, I guess this is a reason to get Kirk on the bridge. He gets Spock off the bridge, but just before he can bring Scotty up there, the alien ship moves in to attack, sending another signal now to the Andorian that attacked Kirk and they have in the brig. Dun-dun! He might be connected to this. McCoy is just about to start the surgery, but Spock tries to get up because he just realized something important about the other ship that could help them, but McCoy sedates him because he doesn't want... You know, people running off in the middle of surgery. You could just tell McCoy, and then McCoy could, like, quickly have the nurse relay the information. But... There is a weird amount of, I need to tell everyone something in person. Relaying information is not okay. Then again, we are in a situation where there's some intrigue and espionage going on. So maybe everyone's a little extra paranoid? Yeah, that could be, I guess. I don't know. It's just to get tension going. They do a pretty good job with stuff. You do, I didn't question it much during... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I will give the episode credit. There's kind of so many things going on that you don't really think about some of the weird holes until like way after. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like, hey, that was a fun episode. Like, wait a moment. I think the uh, the term for this is called fridge logic. (laughs) (laughs) They search the Andorian in the brig and he tries to fight his way out, breaking off one of his antenna, which they find a transmitter hidden in. It was fake. Fake antenna. I know his cute antenna is broken and it's 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 it's, it's not real. <gasps> Kirk orders him brought to the bridge because that's the best thing to do with prisoners. Yeah, not like keep them in the brig. <laughs> yeah, while they deal with the enemy ship. The small ship is too maneuverable for the Enterprise to hit and continues to attack, making McCoy's surgery difficult because it's shaking the ship a bit. Yes, uh, open heart surgery. Well, while you're on a a, a bit of a, a a ride, a rough ride here is. Maybe a little little tricksy. Um, you might want to pull back with that uh, scalpel there, Doc. The Enterprise is no match for the enemy ship because they have more powerful weapons and are more maneuverable, but Kirk decides to shut down everything, fainting that they have been disabled. This works, and they are able to shoot the other ship when it comes in to investigate. They disable it, but before they can communicate, the ship self-destructs. Now we're not going to have anyone to interrogate. Wait a moment, we have this prisoner guy. The Andorian on the bridge also reveals that he was on a suicide mission because he took a slow poison and he drops dead before they can even get him off the bridge. Well, whoever these guys were, they were uh, really interested in this whole suicide mission thing. That must mean that whatever their cause was is like super important that they would put their lives on the line. It, like agree to die for the cause well before everything you know came about it turns out these guys were orions dun 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 sure who (laughs) (laughs) they wanted to kill the federation delegates because not having peace benefits them as profiteers and traitors ah hmm yeah that doesn't See, that's whenever I kept saying the political stuff was unimportant yeah (laughs) Theric was saved despite the attack Kirk is back in sickbay because he's been stabbed. Amanda is all emotional about how her husband got saved. Both Sarek and Spock explain how the surgery was just the most logical thing to do. This upsets Amanda. Spock asks why 
Sarek married such an emotional human, and he said that it seemed logical at the time. Well, just like it was acceptable in the 80s, it was logical at the time. Kirk and Spock both try to get out of sickbay, but McCoy tells them to shut up, smiles, turns to the camera, and says, I finally got the last word. And thus McCoy gained the power to break the fourth wall and was finally free of the show, <laughs> able to go out into the universe and explore as his heart could uh, 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 lead him. Sounds like an interesting, uh, like, referential sci-fi show idea. If a character <laughs> learns of the fourth wall, they can go into the real world and then hop shows. And... <laughs> There's definitely some story stuff you could do there. Yes. <laughs> it's like, the, the, uh, you know, the, instead of a monster of the week, it's a show of the week. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's kind of what Community did. I, I've still not seen that. Well, you should. It's good. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway... This episode, <laughs> this episode was really good. It was the, the first time we had a B story, sort of. Yeah. There were like more than one thing happening at once. It wasn't weird and slow. There were character interactions. The only bad thing about it is that they pulled this Orion thing right out at the end, which is like, these people, this was not set up in any way, shape, or form. We only know who the Orions are because of that one dancing girl in the pilot episode. And they are apparently some sort of slave traders, I guess, and Captain Pike was cool with that. Yep. That's all we do. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think they could have used a little bit more foreshadowing for the Orion specifically, like even a, a one-off line. It's like, you know, you know, it's like, well, at least we're trying to, you know, exploit this one star system for, for good reasons for the Federation as opposed to someone like the Orions and we're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's not even that. But, you know, it's, it's a small sort of quibble. Yeah. They have to keep this secret from the Orions. You know, just something. It's <laughs> but it doesn't matter because the show is actually just much more about Spock and Sarek's character interactions. Yes. And pretty much all of that was fantastic. It was. I also loved this thing that they keep doing, which I don't I don't know why I haven't really seen many people talk about this with the Vulcans, because it's how they are constantly used in this kind of thing where they every time they write Vulcans in Star Trek, they make very emotionally driven decisions. They put them in these incredibly emotional, fraught situations. They're, they're very obviously making emotional decisions that they have to cover up after the fact with logic. Yep. <laughs> so in other words, Vulcans are kind of full of crap, but at least they're calm about it. <laughs> well, it's this very interesting... It gets into some interesting ideas. Like, how do you actually make a decision and how aware of you out of that process mm -hmm. so they did they did this study a bit ago i heard about this this interesting study where they they basically were trying to measure at what point you make a decision and as much as i don't necessarily agree with the validity of all this brain scan stuff i think in this case they were working with something kind of interesting though so they they had to brain scanned and they basically told you, at some point in the next 10 seconds, decide to wiggle your finger. So they sort of uh, keep keep some track of uh, what your, your brain activity is going in then, I'm guessing. Yeah. So they're keeping track of your brain activity, and they say, like, at some point, like, we don't have to know when, just at some point in the next 10 seconds, decide to wiggle your finger so that it's your decision, not us telling you to do it. And the signal, the, the like, activity in your brain would happen... A little bit before you wiggled your finger and before you were aware that you had made the decision to wiggle your finger so the the actual thing that's happening in your brain seems to happen before your conscious awareness of that fact how are they able to measure that uh, that that, uh, that 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 bit of data there? I'm not sure I think they might have had to hit a button or something when they made the decision 
So, and then wiggle. So this suggests two levels of decision sign. They hit the button decision and wiggle your finger. Yeah, I'm forgetting. I should have looked. I've only just remembered this, so I should have looked up the details. But they were they had a way to tell when you like were thinking about it. They had either you like self-reporting or something, and then the finger wiggle itself. And it, it was happening just a few milliseconds before you were kind of like consciously making the decision to do it. Well, you know, you know that there is a delay does kind of make sense because there is a, uh, you know, a information speed uh, you have to sort of contend with when you're dealing with physical systems. Yeah, but you kind of get into this thing, though, then if you're not consciously aware of the decision until after it's made, where's the decision actually coming from? Now well, it's coming from my stomach. <laughs> see this gets to some interesting ideas like i don't necessarily think there's anything contradictory about this the the show i was listening to is a npr show called radio lab and they like to freak out about stuff like this so like oh my god do we have free will which is another discussion eh? but, yeah <laughs> uh, for me the, the free will question is kind of a boot one but anyway yeah does it really matter yeah <laughs> either you do and it doesn't matter or you don't and it doesn't matter yes it's like, well, we, if we had a computer simulation that could perfectly de- uh, determine everything that happens in the universe, then it could predict our, uh, you know, every action perfectly forever. Uh, okay, are you going to be able to build one of these? No. Okay, then. <laughs> but also, then, could you make a different decision than that? And does that mean that your simulation was wrong or that your free will can break the prediction or did making the prediction change the outcome? So there's a lot of interaction here that uh, does kind of all uh, muddle it up. And mm-hmm. so it you know once again kind of makes it a moot point it basically spirals into uselessness very quickly but back to decision making processes yeah uh yeah the the vulcans definitely are in a sort of behavior that they make a decision and then are being forced to by their uh, their training to construct a network of ideas and thoughts around it in order to back it up a justification after the fact and that's kind of obvious a lot of the time which is what most people do like you can yep. <laughs> you can sit down make a very slow methodical thought out decision about something usually it has to involve some sort of discussion with someone else otherwise you're basically just justifying your decision after the fact if you're making a group decision then you sit down and you all discuss it and you come to a consensus on what to do uh, some back and forth there's some interaction there's some uh, challenging assumptions that can be going on in such situations that isn't necessarily going to happen if it's just you and yourself. And the way that the Vulcans are written, I don't think this was as much of a thing in the 60s, but it's definitely become a thing now where we we value logical decision-making and rationality to this kind of absurd degree where we want to discount emotions as a decision-making mechanism. Even though you conceive pretty good arguments for the fact that all decision-making is emotional. In fact, it may be that basically all thought processes are emotional, but emotions are just basically the way your brain interprets everything. To say that a human being can be logical or, you know, 100% or you know, even you know, emotional to a degree, 100%, is a kind of forcing a grouping of these sort of types of thoughts that is very artificial that you know there's going to be much more combination of both these and you know more often than not leading definitely more on the emotional side but it is you know you know a little ridiculous to say that someone is completely one or the other 
Well, there's even this kind of interesting thing, because I've been having this discussion with some with a variety of people. Someone brought this to my attention a while ago that we we don't actually have a working definition of either emotions or rationality. We sort of have convinced ourselves that it's sort of like this, and then everyone kind of has their own view of what that is in the in, in sort of the specifics. Yeah. Kind of. And even if you go, even just looking it up, I know people always pull out the like, well, according to the Oxford Dictionary. But, you know, people only, people only look those up after the fact, though. <laughs> yeah. If you look up definitions of like emotional and rational, one is defined as the absence of the other. So what is, what is, what is it then? Yeah. How do you even start? <laughs> you can't define emotions is a lack of rationality and irrationality is a lack of emotions and have no other explanation oh i'm i'm having a um a flashback to a a similar sort of chain of absurdity in definitions uh oddly enough from babylon 5 uh where you know you know one of the characters is asking uh you know uh, the captain you know it's like so i i looked up what the human word uh of a, a you know a crotchety means and it says grumpy and i looked up what grumpy means and it means this other thing and, and i looked up what that was and it said crotchety <laughs> it's, it's like well this is not very useful at all <laughs> so the fact that we we so value logical and rational decision making but we don't even know what it is is a little interesting. I think it's even gotten to this point where you can see people doing this, where they basically say, do I feel good about this decision that I have made? Like, am I looking at this decision and I can say, like, I feel good about this emotionally. Therefore, it must be the bad decision because if I feel good about it emotionally, it means I'm making an emotional decision and I should make the opposite decision because that means I've removed my emotions from the decision-making process. No, you've only removed that emotion specifically from the decision-making process, and but also at the same time used it as a inverse filter. I, I think the, the like when people say that they're making unemotional decisions, or they want you to make an unemotional decision. They're basically just saying they disagree with the decision you made, and they pull this out because it's just this kind of catch-all term for "I disagree with your decision," and here's my reason. And, you know, then they start yelling, it's "Like, yeah, I'm defeating you with facts and logics, man." And we're like, what? And of course you get into this thing in like Star Trek where of course it's an alien brain. You don't know how their psychology works. Maybe they do something different. But it's basically not possible to make decisions without emotions. We've seen this. People who have had part of their brain damaged and are disconnected from their emotions can't make decisions. It becomes massively more difficult for them. It's like there's no motivation. So, eh? Do you want to talk about espionage? Yeah, so there was maybe some of that happening, sort of. I don't think it involves randomly stabbing the captain no, 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 the, in the lower back heart. Well, uh, there, there is, I guess, sort of different types of espionage you could sort of talk about, uh, and sort of different types of agents, in fact. Um, so, you know, usually the uh, when people are talking about espionage, they're sort of talking about sort of the, the classic Cold War spies, where someone has is going to get some information, then sneak it out of the country and hand it off to other people and you know this is very much a you know movement of of knowledge sort of uh you know, you know uh, espionage here or you know corporate espionage where someone is you know working in a company and then starts slowly sending some uh, corporate secrets over to a different company uh and getting a bit of a, a payback from it uh you know for their efforts and uh, that's sort of you know sort of one sort of group of, of uh you know uh, 
uh, spying and espionage there, but there's much more to it than that. There is more, you know, active benches, for instance, which is kind of on, uh, you know, being showcased here, because you actually have someone who's, you know, being you know, infiltrating the goings on, the organization of the Federation, you know, to the point where they're actually completely, you know, apparently redoing their their external physiology in order to blend in, uh, and so they are, you know, not going to be noticed when they get up to uh, various shenanigans, <clears throat> and um. Yeah, and so you got this, uh, you know, fake Andorian Orion agent guy who is now here for nefarious purposes. But he's not really here to steal information. He is more here to uh, cause mischief, to sabotage, perhaps to uh, generate a bit of controlled opposition sort of uh, activity here. This was just basically a weirdly complicated assassination plot. A little bit. <laughs> It wasn't planned out very well thinking about it, because why do you even need a, like, shipboard double agent dude if you're going to have your ship in plain sight openly communicating with them? I kind of figured that there is a, a sort of a... Everyone's going to try to do something to make this actually work out. Uh, and so they'll try the internal strife thing, and if that didn't work, they would have the ship come in and just blow everything to hell. So uh, you, you get the the agent here who is uh, you know murders the Tellarite ambassador, uh, tries to put it on the on the Vulcan ambassador via how it was uh, performed, and you know that should be enough. But if it's not, we have this, uh, this sort of backup plan just in case, uh, covering all your bases sort of situation. So I actually have known a couple of people who were recruited as intelligence agents, and they've told me things that basically it's uh, mostly fairly unobtrusive looking young women who speak a lot of languages and they either put you in front of a computer to listen to tapped phone calls or they have you sit down in a cafe somewhere and listen to people and they assume you're a tourist who doesn't speak their language. It's uh, very useful to uh, blend in and uh, if you have a pretty enough face, people are like, hmm, well, I'm glad this person's here so I'm not going to do anything to try to get them out of here. Well, not even just pretty, just you know, average enough looking. You're supposed to not be noticed, yes. not... <laughs> anything else you don't run around announcing your name and ordering martinis yeah so well, that kind of gets me uh, to one of the fan theories i've heard about james bond is that you know all of his antics you know in universe are actually a distraction from the people actually doing their jobs right how <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a um, so so the web comic uh, uh, called subnormality actually you know makes had a very good comic year you know, a few years back about uh, this particular thing where the uh, comic seems to be Featuring, you know, this guy in the suit ordering the martinis and, you know, being all boastful and everything like that in this fancy restaurant. And, uh, you know, it, it, there's this narration about this person who's living a spy life and all this. But at the end, you realize, oh, it's not the guy in the suit who's talking all this. It's this nondescript guy with the beard in the background just sort of hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's kind so, of yeah, fun. You know, he's observing all this act is going on so he can, you know, report back later. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the yeah, but uh, in this case, the you know, you know, I think it is kind of interesting, you know, that there was sort of this controlled opposition sort of thing, which is a term that kind of goes around a bit more of uh, recently, where you are at, uh, in, through some means attempting to get your you know various you know uh, oppositions or enemies or whatever to fight amongst themselves or to uh, engage in such a, a fashion that you are able to manipulate them to do exactly what you want. And so if you can get everyone blaming, you know, uh, one ambassador uh, to for the murder of a different one, that will sow distrust and paranoia 
and suddenly, you know, you can't trust each other and this whole Federation thing starts to fall apart. And so it's sort of a undermining the established, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, assumptions about how people are interacting uh, via this sort of sabotage activity. That sounds uh, familiar. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, we're going to, you know, sneak into your organization and we are going to get someone here near the top, but not at the top, who's going to start suggesting all the worst ideas. And uh, we're going to, uh, it's like, oh, well, we're just trying to serve the cause, but we're just going to keep out giving out all the worst ideas in order to do that. And so suddenly everyone's doing, you know, either divided on these things because there's now a faction that totally believes these worst ideas and we should, you know, go all about it entirely. And everyone else is like, no, this is stupid. Let's like actually do something useful. Um, or, you know, the organization, uh, you know, does get completely on board and suddenly the entire organization, you know, instead of uh, being paralyzed by indecision, is now actually getting up to terrible ideas. So that, yeah, sort of the... Uh, more common form of a controlled opposition that we uh, see these days. Um, there, but you know, the, the, this this sort of uh, technique is not something new either. It's something that was very much in practice once this episode of Star Trek was uh, put together. Uh, and uh, you know, and there is a you know, jokes about like this uh, stuff during the civil rights era, where there was a number of government agencies that were uh, infiltrating groups they thought were up to no good. Yeah, and you know, some of them maybe were, but a lot of them weren't. And so, like, yeah, like one in six of us is actually just someone working for the FBI, CIA, or somebody else. <laughs> was sort of the <laughs> uh, the running uh, joke there. Um, and there is some credence that suggests that might have been the case in some organizations. Um, and it's you know, but it you know, in addition to the direct uh, application of uh, of uh, causing mischief. It also, once people sort of start realizing this is a thing going on, it increases paranoia. Because if now you can't trust the people that say they're on the same side as you, then who can you trust? Get when it, can I trust you? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> and, it's the nature of online working relationships when you don't meet people. <laughs> or, you know, for all you know, I could be some sort of uh, brain in a jar that uh, is attached to a, a, a kill bot that's presently marching around uh, uh, downtown for you. <laughs> it was only like three episodes ago we we established you were a sentient potato. Don't rhyme, people. <laughs> I want to be the giant <laughs> robot. <laughs> sentient potato piloting a giant robot. <laughs> My secrets are out now. <laughs> so should we talk about something ooky? Kooky? Ooky. Go for it. Ooky. Well, just I feel like this should this uh, deserves a slight warning, and then I'm going to be talking about blood science. I know that bugs some people. I'm going to estimate it's going to take 10, 15 minutes before we get to the uh, game show. So you know, skip ahead a little bit if you don't if you are kind of you know skeeved out by this topic. But if you really enjoy piles of blood, keep on listening. So that was a major part of this episode's subplot or main plot. I don't know which one would be which. Actually, I think the assassination was probably more of a subplot. Anyway. <laughs> You had a lot of talk about your blood transfusions in this episode, which got me looking up some stuff, because it's kind of this interesting thing of they don't seem to have artificial blood by this point, yeah. which is actually sort of this holy grail of science. I saw this estimation that if they ever invent artificial blood, it will immediately become like a $7 billion industry. Because uh, you no longer have to worry about blood transfusions. You don't need to, you know, keep it stored, you know, uh, you know stored blood. Uh, you don't have to worry as much when there's a uh, natural disaster to you know, about running low and, you know, it's like, oh, suddenly you could just sort of create this on demand and it, 
you don't have to actually sort of wrangle people into uh, providing it. Yeah, and what's really interesting, I did some research, and there's a weird history of blood transfusion uh, that, like, starting in the in like in like 16, 1616, they discovered that blood actually moves around through your body. Before they were only looking at cadavers, and they thought it just sat there. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, the, the weird fluids and humors and things like that they're just trying to hang out yeah so they discover that it moves around and that's when they started experimenting with it after later after that they actually had a successful blood transfusion between two people um every subsequent one failed i guess they got lucky matching up blood types on the first go like, oh yes yeah, so this is mr o negative and uh, this guy's anything else and uh, we just got lucky this time we tried it in reverse and well it just went badly so it took them a while to figure that out, but apparently in there they were trying out artificial blood substances, uh, which included beer, which didn't work. <laughs> I uh, wonder why. <laughs> urine also didn't work. Uh, the one that may have worked, in fact, was milk, which I thought was pretty interesting. They were trying to use it to treat Asiatic cholera patients, and it, it showed some amount of success weird uh it was just thought of as odd and never really reached any kind of mainstream appeal or or got tested in any way but there's reports of of just injecting milk in as a blood substitute may have had some success in treating asiatic cholera patients that's very bizarre i never would have thought of that pretty weird and interesting (laughs) note to self if for some reason i'm ever on death row and i i'm going to ask for lethal injection via milk And that gets us into some things with well, the reason that blood transfusions and blood typing are important. And one of the things they mentioned was that uh, Sarek has a particularly uh, rare blood type for Vulcans, which they said was T negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, blood contains these things called antigens, which is basically your body's a part of how your body's immune system works. And if you don't match up antigen to antigen, your body thinks that the new blood is a invasive entity and it will attack it It creates an autoimmune response it's like okay so wait this is some sort of foreign substance this is like some sort of alien bacteria oh no must destroy it now and in severe cases this can create enough of a reaction to just kill you outright Uh, more likely the reason that you need a blood transfusion is because you're already not doing well so taxing your immune system in addition to that is going to kill you oh now and then your blood is now fighting other blood and so it's kind of canceling itself out and it's also causing others havoc and also that whole missing an arm thing that's bleeding out problem is yeah then i found this pretty interesting and the the reason that people don't have the same kind of blood the reason that we have different blood types is because over the history of humanity spreading out and going to different parts of the world, people encountered different sorts of bloodborne illnesses. And your, your antigens developed differently based on where your ancestors lived and what kind of bacteria and parasites they had to fight off with their blood. So, uh... So someone of European descent is going to have different blood types. I think they're more likely to have a B, I think it was. Uh, they're going to have a different, more common blood type than someone whose family was from Asia because their ancestors dealt with different bacteria and parasites and the antigens in their bloods changes depending on which kinds of bacteria or parasites their ancestors had to deal with. Indeed. 
and uh, and also not only antigens people talk about blood types and that's been like this main thing with blood banks but i was actually reading this interesting article recently uh in the new york times that was talking about how we need to diversify our blood pool because in addition to just antigens there's other stuff there's like sugars and some just various other things that depending on your kind of ancestry or how closely related you are or what region your ancestors were from they're different enough that they can cause problems given repeated uses like one or two blood transfusions you're not going to have that much of a problem if you're the same blood type but if you have to repeatedly get blood transfusions all these other things still cause an immune response and can still kind of build up sort of uh, the you know the trailing uh, modifier to all this uh, you know your your blood type there yeah up. and we're we're getting these weird like it's it's a weird thing right now because um obviously the way that uh, they are they're collecting blood samples kind of heavily heavily incentivizes certain groups to give blood more than others like the, the ad campaigns are like targeted uh even into the 1970s in fact they kept blood segregated like they wouldn't let certain you know races give blood to others awkward but that de-incentivized certain groups from giving blood altogether which means that our blood pool is kind of skewed and since it's not even just about blood typing it's actually more advantageous if you can get blood that's kind of more closely related to you genetically uh having a very narrow pool of people whose blood you're collecting causes problems so um so the other thing that I was looking up was the fake blood, because that's oh, something yes, people yes. are working on. It's very, very difficult to do, apparently, because hemoglobin, which is the main component in red blood cells that lets them carry oxygen, is a uh, iron-based molecule that dissolves oxygen and then can release it later. Yeah, so basically, it's uh, your, your blood is rusty. And outside of a blood cell, it's actually toxic. Whoops. <laughs> so they've done some experiments. This is one of the main things that they seem to be working on is, is you can create artificial hemoglobin. It's not that hard. And you can dissolve oxygen in it. It's also not that hard. But if you put it into a person, it's toxic. So you basically need some sort of like a carrier system, almost like a cell. Yeah. So without cells, they have to come up with some other way to get it to oxygenate. We have what's called like blood they were describing as like blood volume replacements so something like a, a lactated ringer which is a kind of um, solution that rehydrates you can kind of give you more of the liquid component but we don't have anything right now that helps your body carry oxygen is that, that yeah you know, i'm not as familiar with, you know you know the blood stuff as uh, you are at this point uh does that all a lot of the uh Sort of the plasma donation stuff is about as well yeah plasma is the stuff that your you know, red blood cells are floating in so plasma would be a bulking agent more so than a than a oxygen carrier the thing with plasma is plasma um lasts longer it doesn't go bad as quickly as just straight out blood does so which is why they keep plasma around also just as a weird aside uh coconut water actually has the same saline content as lactated ringers and you can use straight up coconut water as a rehydrating agent in an iv wait a moment is that why they use the coconut sound effect maybe <laughs> the other kind of interesting thing with this is um the green vulcan blood which is something they bring up fairly often in this show actually copper based right yes so green vulcan blood is supposedly copper based which is 
real. Yep. This is a thing that many crustaceans on Earth have. It's called a uh, hemocyan, as opposed to a hemoglobin, and it is a copper-based molecule that can dissolve and release oxygen in the bloodstream. Interestingly, often appears blue. Not green. Not green. Yes. Uh, it's very commonly collected from horseshoe crabs, which is an environmental disaster we're not going to get into. Horseshoe crabs are endangered, but we use their blood for a lot of medical stuff. It's actually really important medically. So maybe we should, like, stop killing them so much. Yeah. Well, we kill them for this. We, you, like, collect a bunch of their blood. So let's, let's make a whole bunch of them. Let's cl start cloning. <laughs> that might help, yeah. There's another one. I couldn't. I have trouble finding this. There's a third kind of blood that is like a purple blood that's pretty rare, exists in some worms, and it's like a third kind of molecule. I think it's also an iron-based molecule, but it's not a hemoglobin molecule. It binds to oxygen in a slightly different way and creates a purple color. So we've got blue blood, purple blood, and red blood. So we, you know, so we got a class for each kind of blood then, too. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, hemocyons are the second most common kind of blood on Earth, mm -hmm. with the hemoglobins being the most common. So I guess the Vulcans could have some sort of hemocyon or something else that makes it greenish. Like, the green is just an easy way to go with alien blood, I suppose. No, maybe, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's some extra chemicals that makes gives it the particular extra green hue to it but you also see aliens in star trek and other places bleeding purple a lot which is also just it's supposed to just be a weird color the purple blue and green are your common alien blood colors which actually work out biologically so that's fun then you have the klingons who in the shows often often uh, red but at one time in the in the movie it was pink yeah i think it was because of early computer effects more than anything <laughs> but it, you know seeing that for the first time it was kind of like you know i Never would have thought the Klingons are full of pinkness. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Upset stomach, die. Abysmal blood. <laughs> well, that ends our blood talk. It was just about 10 minutes. So hello, everyone who skipped past this for, for pretty understandable not wanting to hear about that reason. So. Well, I, I could try to uh, sing badly uh, the, the Bloodmobile song by They Might Be Giants. I don't know if I even heard that. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I think it's on the, the, the album, but I think it's like Here Comes Science. <laughs> all right uh, but i if i'm gonna sing any songs from that that album i think i'll probably do the one about the uh what, why does the sun shine but yeah <laughs> that was the last of all the things that i had so unless you had some other uh, no, anything in particular i've sort of been you know you know i guess uh mentioning a little bit of a uh, you know uh you know babylon 5 in various uh you know bits throughout this episode here um but uh, the 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 whole ambassadors coming together thing did have that on my head i'm in my head the entire time and uh, i do hope that at some point we'll be able to get some get some uh, babylon 5 even if it's just like one or two of the movies but um hopefully i've never actually gotten to see much of babylon 5 oh, uh, I, when we do uh don't judge it by the first season it's it's really awkward there, there's, some, <laughs> there's some great episodes there but like tko is just terrible <laughs> it's the one episode the first season i just skip <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know there, there, there's some good stuff there and uh yeah especially when we get around to, you know to babylon square we'll, we'll be like like okay there's some weird stuff going on here what's going on <laughs> but anyway i, you know, I just want to sort of you know, you know mention that, that that hope someday because this episode did kind of remind me a, a fair bit about that uh because there's 
multiple plots going on. There is, you know, you know, political intrigue. There's uh, stuff going on. Occasional random people getting murdered. We're not entirely sure why. And there might be a thing out floating outside the ship uh, or, or space station, uh, you know, depending on what series you're talking about. That's going to kill us all if we don't do anything about it. So, yes. <laughs> I just hope that things keep being this good on this yes. show. Fingers crossed. But I suppose to find that out, we'll have to get to later. And to get to later, we need to have the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey, everybody, we've tallied up all the points for our contestants today, and we're finally you know, in the position to lay out the awards for uh, their, their high scores today. Our first award is going out to uh, whoever's in charge of security once again, and that's the Failure to CSI Award, because doesn't anyone look for fingerprints in the future? Come on, guys. What's up? Kepwin, what do they win? They win. Actually, that's probably better science, because it's being revealed that fingerprints are not pretty good evidence. DNA is kind of flawed at the minute some of the bite stuff they put in basically all of our modern forensics is pretty questionable so they did better hmm. maybe i should retract that one but they should probably you know get an award anyway our second award is never tell me the odds for amanda for just straight up telling spock not to uh tell her the odds like just shut up man i don't care what does she win Gepwin? amanda wins just a fan favorite award for yelling the thing we're all thinking <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. You've, you've, you've warmed our hearts. Our third and final award today is To Die is Logical Award, which goes to Spock for arguing that it's logical for him not to go through the surgery because kind of, well, I gotta be in charge of the ship, I guess, reasons, I think. I mean, come on, Scotty is a better commanding officer after all. He, the ship's in better shape with him in charge. Come on, Spock. Come on. Come on. What does he win, Gepwin? Spock wins a super logic commendation for... You know, he has to sacrifice for logic reasons because, you know, if he didn't, that'd be an emotional decision and that's bad. So he knows that the other one must be the logical decision because it's not the emotional decision. There you go, Spock. Now you get to not feel good about yourself? Hmm. That's it, Get put. Well, that would be yes. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it for uh, the awards today. I think our contestants are... Um, uh, enjoying them, their time in a, in a better episode, but uh, yeah, there's still some, some silliness to be poking at here. Yes, yeah, so I want our contestants to die slightly less in this episode than other ones, and I hope that they enjoy their prizes, and thank you all for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! <laughs> then next episode's another one i haven't heard of uh, uh let me do the thing where i remember what i it was um it is called friday's child friday's child tgif you're going out to eat <laughs> I believe this involves klingons tgifc <laughs> <laughs> thank god it's friday's child who does not want her unborn child oh <laughs> I'm just glancing at this. I think we're going to be let down with our about our wish there. <laughs> just a feel. They kind of engage in a tribal power struggle. Adding to their difficulty is the presence of a Klingon woman who does not want her unborn child. Are we having an abortion episode? I guess we're going to find out. 
I don't want an abortion episode from the 60s. Well, as long as it's better than Kill the Moon from Doctor Who, then then I'll be at least only slightly annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Man, that episode sucked. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Title is a reference from a line from the poem of Monday's Child. Friday's Child is full of woe. Whoa. Okay, so there's going to be some woe. But it was also written by DC Fontana, so I have a mild amount of hope. Fontana, um, save this just terrible description. Yeah. Okay, the, the description there sounds better. <laughs> Writer DC Fontana said she wanted a story about a strong young woman who did not necessarily want children. Oh, okay. So hopefully that turns out better. Fingers crossed. Yes, we'll find out whether this is horrible or not next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk steals himself a wife. It took this long? Well, the Enterprise was his, his wife before, but he's getting an extra one. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash drisix, and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>